that if you get one commercial out of 60, it's a great batting average. I got three over the years where I was doing that. I still was having fun with the, the novelty of being a, a kid from Ohio on the bus into Hollywood. Ooh, like that still kept me going. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. With over 100 acting credits on IMDb, Rob Lowe has starred in everything from timeless films to acclaimed television series. Rob moved from Dayton, Ohio as a teenager with his mother and younger brother to Malibu, California, where he got his start in acting. After a nod from the Golden Globes for his supporting role in Thursday's Child, in 1983, Rob earned international stardom alongside a young group of up-and-coming actors in Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders. Throughout the 80s, Rob starred in a number of other coming-of-age films, earning himself a place in the Brat Pack alongside Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy, forever ingraining Rob in 80s pop culture. The following decade saw Rob fully immerse himself in the world of comedy with iconic roles in Wayne's World, Tommy Boy, and the Austin Powers trilogy. By the early 2000s, Rob found a place amongst the cast of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, the record-breaking series with 95 Emmy nominations and 26 wins. Rob himself earned two SAG wins for his role as Deputy White House Communications Director Sam Seaborn. In the following years, Rob has appeared consistently across both TV and film, embodying the endlessly optimistic Chris Traeger in Parks and Recreation, earning a Golden Globe nomination for his role in The Grinder, and currently he's starring in the popular drama series 911 Lone Star. He also brings weekly guests onto his own podcast, literally with Rob Lowe. Today, we're here to talk about his latest series, Unstable which he and his son, John Owen, created and star in together. The series follows an introverted son, played by John Owen, who goes to work for his very successful, wildly eccentric father, played by Rob Lowe, in order to save him and his successful biotech company from disaster. And we're on. We are on. We are on. Rob Lowe, my teenage self is like freaking out right now. It's so great 30-some <laughs> years later. <laughs> Better late than never. Better late than never. And I was just <laughs> telling my producer that when I was at, in college, the nickname for our friend group was like the St. Elmo's Fire group. So it's... Oh, I it's, love it. Right? Like... It's Did just, you have individual names from our characters? Like, was there no, a Billy Hicks? No, it was Hicks just more like it was yeah. just more like the group. But yes, we definitely yes, identified with um, <laughs> certain characters. Of course, I was the Mar Winningham character. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> good for you. Uh, but also, Rob, one podcaster to another. This is so exciting. Uh, I know. Look at us doing is, our thing. This is amazing because you've done a hundred and if you want to know, you've done one hundred and forty-seven podcasts, and I think I just published my one hundred and forty-third. So we we're are right there. We're neck and neck. <laughs> we are neck and neck. Uh, we love to talk clearly, and yes. we're curious people. So that's um, what makes it happen. I mean, that's why I did it. I I I, I see. I would see interviews with. You know, people that I knew, famous people that I knew. And I was like, why aren't they asking them about, you know, fill in the blank. So I got my own show and now I ask them about fill in the blank. Yeah, now you can. Um, Well, part of, you know, obviously doing this at Netflix, it's like I spent my year, my, my career at Vanity Fair doing other kinds of journalism. It's so interesting to have 
the audio dialogue, you know, yeah. and when I would do interviews for cover stories and stuff, it would be a tape and you could kind of frame it. But what I love yeah. about this medium is you just are you're out there. You're both like kind of like bare naked having this conversation. And other yeah. than editing a couple of M's and A's out and whatnot, it's just really a fun uh, experience to have that dialogue. Super authentic. That's the, that's the thing. All right. So I am here to talk to you about your show, Unstable on Netflix. And I will say when I first saw this come through as being greenlit, as we say in the business, I was like, I want Rob Lowe for the show. So this has been like a year and a half in the making. Amazing. Um, and I'm thrilled to have you on. And I'm thrilled to talk about this because you are such a unicorn in this business. Uh Someone that I feel like has been so prolific uh, for, you know, whatever it is, three decades, four decades. Honestly, at this point, you were acting as a teenager and you're at the epicenter of also now it's a next generation. And I know I'm going to get to the Nepo conversation because I know you're going to have an interesting reframe POV on that. But yeah, yeah. why this show? Why now? How did this all come together? And, and I should say for our listeners, Rob's son, John Owen, is a co-creator, executive producer and stars as your son on the show. It's a stretch. He stars <laughs> as my son. It's a real stretch for the kid. Um, there's so much that went into it. I mean, really, really, really going back to it was I did a show a number of years ago for Fox called The Grinder, and I loved it. I thought it was it was a character that I felt like only I could. Every once in a while, you get a character that you feel like only you could play. It doesn't happen all the time. Even in, even in, in roles where you're successful in them, there's a version where somebody else could play it that might be just as good. Then there are the ones where you go, you know what? Only I could play that. The Grinder was one of them. It was super, super funny. We did 22 episodes. It's, it, it remains my favorite comedy I've ever been in. And it couldn't find an audience on Fox for a lot of different reasons. And I thought, wow, if, if I did a show like that that worked, that, that, that was that good as a comedy and it couldn't find an audience on a network, I'm done doing network comedy. I'll never do another one. So I wanted to do a co try comedy on a streamer. Hello, Netflix. Mm. So there was that. I was looking for something to do on a streamer. Then a few years go by and um, my son, John Owen, as kids are likely to do to their parents, any parent will know they love to make fun of us and they love to roll their eyes at us. doesn't matter who you are. Even Paul McCartney's daughters rolled their eyes at Paul McCartney. <laughs> and he would make fun of me on my social media or on his. And it was just something he did to make himself laugh and to make me laugh, because I have to admit it would make me laugh. And it kind of caught on and people started being really into it. And it got to the point where if I did an interview on Good Morning America or Jimmy Fallon or you name it, they just wanted to talk about that. Your son, <laughs> your son really knocks the crap out of you. And then they'll put the tweets or whatever up on the screen. So it became such a thing that he and I go, gosh, people really enjoy this. Is there, a, is there a show there? Is there is there anything there? Because when the audience is telling you they want more of something, if you're a storyteller, you might want to listen to that. Mm -hmm. So we're like, well, we're not going to do a reality show and give them that. I, got, I, I don't have much interest in that. And if we did a show, I don't think, I think the idea of me as a larger than life version of myself is, it's been done so well with, by Larry David that I didn't want to do that. 
so we 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 spend some time breaking down what are the like the elements that make it what it is and transcribed that into two fictional father and son characters and came up with unstable. It's all the devils in the details, which is what yes. I love about this show. It's the kind of send up of the dot com burst genius mixed with the, the young kids involved with the older generation. It's got everything. And then the flute out of nowhere. <laughs> we get the flute. I, I should say. I mean, uh, not since Jethro Tull has the flute <laughs> been more prominent in modern entertainment. I know. And the, all you flautists out there, get ready. <laughs> I just love that you and, and John Owen came up with that specificity of that's what he's it's because it does in a word you, you can kind of picture the the man that's going to be, you know, like a flautist, like the, who that character is. And from all of that, everything else can stem. And I got to give I got to give credit to our uh, so that uh, our third co-creator of the show, Victor Fresco, funny, wonderful guy. And uh, among among his many contributions to the show was the flute, um, and uh, it is it, it 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 makes me laugh as well. Thank you. <laughs> How is that creative process when you're creating something with a family member? Because I've been fascinated by uh, families working together, siblings working together, and I remember talking to the Duffer brothers, who obviously created Stranger Things. You know, they fill in the blanks for each other, but also there's that natural creative tension, but they can never get rid of each other. So it always has to be solved. Right. <laughs> and I find that a lot with siblings that work together, either produce together, direct together, write together. So how is that process for you and John Owen? Like, cause obviously you're going to get into art, you know, you're not, no one's perfect. People have bad days, good days. You disagree yeah. on things, simple things, large things. How is that process for the two of you? Well, here's what's kind of amazing about it for me. And I don't know if it's because I raised him up with my wife, Cheryl, or, and, and exposed him to my favorite movies and to favorite TV shows. And I'm very opinionated and went crap all over things I didn't like in front of him. But he has exactly the same taste I do. Exactly. And it's almost like two versions of the same brain. So when he's in the writer's room day in and day out, I'm not. I know that it's in really good hands. Like he's going to shoot down a story that I wouldn't like, and he's going to love a story that I would love. And that goes for jokes. That goes for casting tapes. It goes for all, I can't think of anything that we've had different takes on. I, we've both had different takes with Victor, but we've never had different takes amongst each other. So I find it a huge relief, a huge, like I could send him into editing and he could look at a cut, and if he has, I know he's going to make it better. I, I just can't tell you what a relief it is to have. Can you imagine if you could have two of you <laughs> in your life? And now Johnny's going to hate this, and this is the, the heart of the show. <laughs> this is Johnny. If Johnny listens to this interview, he's going great. All my dad thinks is I'm another one of him. Yeah, a mini and see, me. That is that's the truth of the show, which makes it fun. Is the authenticity of, you know, like that baked in stuff. It's it's fine to be somebody's second brain, but you want to be yourself too. And that's really what the show's about. I want to get to, I want to put a pin in that because you, you brought up the casting and I have to say, you've got a lot of great characters here and a lot of great actors. Sean Clifford, obviously from Fleabag, who I love, who plays Anna. I mean, you She's have amazing. a great, a lot of new young actors I hadn't seen before. There's a great chemistry on the show. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? How was that putting this, this cast together? 
Well, casting is, as you know, I think is, you know, that's the great a Hitchcock was asked what makes a, a hit. And he said, casting. And, you know, it, the battle is won and lost right there. You know, I, I, I kind of pride myself on my casting and the things that I've been able to cast on my own. I've, I've, almost everybody has gone on to do something great when we're, when they're done, which isn't surprising. Actors know acting when they mm-hmm. see it. You know, Sean, we were so lucky to get, and she just loved the, the pilot script, loved it. And, you know, coming off of Fleabag, which I loved, and she's, the, talk about acting, that show's so, so good. good. <laughs> um, and starting with her, it, it, what I also liked about it is not only was she great, is she great, wonderful person, but as a producer in me, the producer part goes, it sends a cool message. Like you cast her, it, it definitely tells you what type of show we're doing. You know, everything, everything speaks, everything, every choice speaks and says something about what you're doing. And to have someone of her particular type of pedigree coming after Fleabag was, was super important to say that, you know, what, what we're aspiring to do in terms of the level of, mm-hmm. of what we're mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. The kids, we got the, the youngins. Here's the thing, there's so much work today. There's so much work for actors, so much work for young actors that it's, you got to dig because all of the, all of the good ones are working. Mm-hmm. And the, we were really lucky to find this core cast of, of people who can deliver the jokes, but feel authentic, who can act, um, and have the kind of charisma that you're, you're looking for. We are really, really lucky to find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, so curious to see the Netflix effect because it's a very real thing when you take an actor that, and you're right, there's so much, so many TV shows. I, I have a long list. I have a joke with friends that are like, oh my God, you have to watch this. You have to, yeah. you know, everyone's yeah. kind of self-selecting yes. there. You have to watch this. Yeah. Uh, right. But there is something to the Netflix effect when you take these uh, younger, you know, new, fresh actors and you put them on Netflix and suddenly yeah. it, it's an explosion because they're always on and people, you know, every day is a premiere for someone on Netflix somewhere in the world. It is kind of incredible. And working there in the past several years, it's been amazing to watch uh, and what pops. And I think the chemistry, one of the, the huge strength of the show is the natural chemistry and uh, that you have, which I think is, you know, kudos to you. And it's no surprise, actor, actor. Uh, actors, no, no, no actor. But okay, so let's go back to John Owen. Now, I'm bringing my own bias into this. So just yes. fully recognize that. And I'm also a parent of two teenage boys. So oh, I'm bringing boy. that into this <laughs> as well. So I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> your son goes to Stanford, okay? Yes. Stanford. And I mm-hmm. believe if the internet is correct, majored in computer science or or, or something of such or it's engineering. A, they, or, offer a, they, they offer an, a, an amazing blend there. It's called STEM, I believe. It's like, it's a blend of a lot of different disciplines. Yeah. Okay. And I know this because I have a kid that's looking as a junior and he's looking at colleges. Like Stanford has a 1% acceptance rate. And- your son got into Stanford, graduated mm-hmm. Stanford, and then said, Dad, I'm going to go into show business. The way he got into Stanford, well, he got in for his writing initially. That that was the, the program that funneled him in. But before that, he was the youngest published intern in stem cell science at UCSF's Eli Broad School of uh, 
you know, of, of stem cells, whatever the hell it's called. And so I was like, wow, he's on a path to, you know, do amazing things in science and really, really help change medicine and change the world. Instead, I got an actor. <laughs> and I cannot tell you, I, I, I still, as I say it out loud, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I, how did it all go so wrong at the 11th hour, mm-hmm. do you think? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm asking you. Like, we know this business is so hard on a good day. This, And you can speak with such authority on this. On a well, good day, it's challenging. There, well, here's what, know, it's interesting you say that because what turned him, he came home. I said, how's it going at the Eli Broad thing? What's going on? He goes, I said, are you going to go into that? And he goes, Dad, I just don't think that life is for me. I've seen how hard it is. I mean, unless you love – ironically, he'd end up playing a kid in a lab in the show. Mm-hmm. It's very ironic. Mm-hmm. But he goes, unless you love being in a lab, looking in a microscope 12 hours a day, it's not for you. He said, the guy in – I'll never forget the way he said it. The guy in the cubicle next to me just won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that life. And it's hard to argue with that kind of gimlet-eyed mm-hmm. assessment. And the other part of it is, you know, we all we all share DNA and you see athletes who, second-generation athletes who go into athletics and you, you see it all over the world, people who something's in their blood and, and you know, at a certain point you can't fight mm-hmm. the genetics. But also, I think for his sake, it's amazing that he he went into something where he proved himself outside of your world. Like he yeah. was so successful and had such a clear path should he choose to take it that I wonder if that's what kind of gave him the the confidence hmm. and the fortitude to go into like, oh, well, now I can go and as a writer, creator, actor on my own volition because I know that I could also have done on a right turn and done that and done it well. I mean, that's really exceptional. Obviously, he's exceptionally bright. Uh, he inherited your work ethic and, and all of that. And your other son, I don't want to sleep on the other son either, who is a lawyer. So uh, it, listeners, yeah. don't think that we're favoring yeah. one child. We're just talking <laughs> about one here because he happens yes. to be in the show yes. with yeah, his father. And the father. other one is, is in, is in, is, was working in real life at a real job. He's, he went, went to law school and, you know, passed the bar and said, you know, instead of opening a practice or going into practice, went into business and he works in finance now. And he's got a real job. It's amazing. It's incredible. I mean, you you did it. You rate you, and you're still married. So I know I all of this stuff. We take take it for granted. And I I am obsessed with your your wife because I love her jewelry. And I just oh thank you. I just think she's super talented. Her uh, jewelry is cool. Cheryl Lowe Designs. You can yes. go online and look at it. I I'm the luckiest guy ever because I I get a version of it called Mister Lowe. There's a men's line, Mister Lowe. I wonder who Mister Lowe is. It might be me. Um, <laughs> And so any birthday, any present, any time I get a present, I know I'm getting something super sick. It's great. You and I have been in the, a few of the same rooms together over the years. Yeah. But it's interesting when people talk about your wife, they talk about her with a lot of reverence. I mean, people really love her. She's strong. She's tough. She's talented. She's amazing. You, you, just, you never hear anything disparaging about her mm. ever. And I have to say that's incredible. And she obviously put up with you and loved you for 30 plus uh, years. And, and that's and, exactly right. You had it. Not only did you, ha- <laughs> you had it in the right order too. put up with me first and love me. 
That's, that's you couldn't have said it better. Obviously, there's no secret to a relationship lasting. As we know, the divorce rate is over half. And I asked this question once to Ron Howard, because obviously mm. he's been married for a long time, raised four yeah. children uh, with his wife, Cheryl. And I said, what what's the key with his wife? And he, I think it was also named Cheryl, actually. Yeah, and sure. uh, yeah. he said, we never fell out of love with each other at the same time, which I just I thought was said, an amazing comment. I like at the same time, the key being at the same time. Right. Right. That is very sweet. I'm going to steal that. But I'm going to quote Hitchcock again, who I quoted earlier, because he said the secret of success of a hit is casting. And the same is true for marriage. It's won and lost there. Like, I think I see this. A lot of people have partners and there are these intrinsic things embedded from the start in the relationship, whether it's how how they see the world, how they feel about money, how do they feel about work, how do they feel about you name it, like little things like what type what type of schools do you want your kids to go to, like you, discipline, drugs, alcohol, whatever. And Cheryl and I have always been on the same page on everything, and I think that's the stuff that that inoculates you against the things that are inevitably going to come up over the years and the years and the years and the years and the years. If you have the same worldview, you're, you're so much farther ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's a very Thank tough you. environment. And it feels like your decision to marry Cheryl was one of the, was the first kind of decision post-sobriety too. It was the biggest oh, grown-up yes. decision after, and you were still young. Mm-hmm. You were so young. Yeah, I got sober at 26 and then was married the next year. They say wait a year. Don't do any don't do any don't do any big moves for 9 months or a year and I I'm a very I take direction for a living. <laughs> it's one of my strengths. Yeah. And uh so I, I followed I followed what everybody wanted me to do. And without a doubt, those two things made my life. For, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Getting getting sober, marrying Cheryl, for sure. Without those, I don't know what becomes of me. Hmm. Well, I'm going to take you back to the beginning a little bit because uh, I'm fascinated with that early part of of life, you know, that 70s, 80s. And by the way, I would love in in my other world, you and I are doing a podcast just on the 80s alone. We can just go through point by point. But I should say that you have 104 acting credits on IMDb. Okay, so here's this kid that, you know, divorce, whatever the reasons that are set into motion, moves from Ohio to Malibu, right? As a young preteen, mm-hmm. right? You were you were young, right? Impressionable, young. Somehow you land, your mother landed you in Malibu, right? Which at that point is not the kind of Malibu we know now at all, right? No, not at all. It is, you know, there was the colony that was happening then, right? That little area of, of movie star row. But where you were was not the case. Very middle class teachers, firefighters living there. There were, You rode a horse to the market and tied your horse to a hitching post if you wanted to. I'm obsessed with it. I'm developing a, a show around this because the story's never been told. And I'm, I'm, I could talk for 100 years about Malibu in 1976, 77, 78, what it was like. And, you know, there were no studio executives, no billionaires, no nothing, none of it. Um, and even the stars that lived there were only, they're a very specific type of star. Mm-hmm. You know, Cary Grant wasn't living in Malibu. Mm-mm. Paul Newman wasn't living in Malibu. Um, Steve McQueen was. Um, 
but they were only the iconoclasts and the kind of, you know, kind, I don't want to say druggy, but, but druggy and, you know, kind of the lawbreakers um, amongst the regular people. Mm-hmm. What was that transition like for you? I mean, obviously you, you are born with the pre-natural beauty. So I'm sure as a kid doing commercial, anything would have been, oh my God, you should, you have a perfect face for everything. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Colgate. <laughs> Colgate, commercials, cereal, whatever. I could see that being a natural people responding to the way you look. We all know how we respond to, to, um, but I, only, I only got three commercials. I mean, they, I remember them telling me when I would take the bus from Point Doom to Santa Monica, get on another bus, take from Santa Monica to Beverly Hills, get on another bus, take that bus to Hollywood, go in and, you know, they take your picture and I'd go home and do my homework on the bus and get home and go to sleep. And I did that all the time. Um, they said that if you get one commercial out of 60, it's a great batting average. I got three over the years where I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it was, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I would see other kids who got everything and I was like, oh gosh, I don't know. It was, that was, I did, that, that was not fun, although I was too new to know. I, I still was having fun with the, with the, the novelty of being a, a kid from Ohio on the bus into Hollywood. Ooh, mm-hmm. Like that's still kept me going. Mm-hmm. What were the characters in the film uh, stars or the film roles that you saw that impacted you, that made you kind of take that leap? Think, oh, this gosh. is what I'm doing. This is it. Like, forget the commercial. Yes, the commercials yeah. are a means to an end, but this is really what I want to do. I, the, just all of those, you know, I was so blessed to grow up during the golden age of movies, you know, the late 60s into the 70s. Uh, it's the golden age. I, I think we all kind of know that now. Jack Nicholson and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Redford and, and Dustin Hoffman and All the President's Men or Dustin and Marathon Man or Warren Beatty and Heaven Can Wait or everybody in Deliverance or, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid as a buddy comedy. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Those were the the movie stars, I aspi- actors I aspired to. To be, and they—they they, to this day, when I watch those movies, it reminds me of why I got in this business in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you also had that unique environment where you, you were growing up, or or you were socializing with the Sheens and the Pens because they were out there in Malibu. Everyone's going to public school also yep. at that time, and you saw it firsthand, right? Because you would have seen Martin well, Sheen, I, and obviously, you know, we met these kids, the Sheens, and the dad was never around because he was away doing this movie called. Apocalypse Now. And I remember going, I don't even know what that word means. And I certainly don't even know how to spell it. And he was just never there. And he was like this mysterious dad that you never saw. And then he came home. And then the movie came out. And then it became what it became. So it was a really interesting thing to be, I mean, you know, 75,000 moves away from Apocalypse. But to like hear about it, hear stories about it from your buddy's dad and, and, and it was, it was legendary stuff even before it, it came out. And, you know, of course the, the pen boys, dad, Leo is one of the, you know, great journeyman television directors and had been blacklisted in the McCarthy hearings. And, you know, you'd, you'd know that. And so that was kind of the stuff that was around as opposed to everybody was wanting to be an actor. Cause a lot of, 
I was, but Charlie was a baseball player, was, was going to be a baseball player. He was, had an amazing arm, probably could have been. Um, and I, I'm not sure Chris Penn was making movies, eight millimeter movies. They were always about Nam. Everything was about Nam. <laughs> Some more movies mm-hmm. about Nam made at the Mayfair Market in Malibu. Than, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that was that was what but was you, stewing. But you didn't feel any difference. You didn't feel like they were at a level above you, did you? Because no. I think it's in, that's really what I think is so interesting about that time period. It's like even though they had more money or their, or quote unquote their parents. Oh, I felt like I was above them. them. I felt I was farther down the road than they were because I've been doing it since I was eight. I'd already like, and you know, when you're young, you know, time seems longer or short. Like, like I felt like I've been doing it forever because I've been doing it, you know, since I was eight and now I'm Mm -hmm. 12. And so, but I didn't, they were farther ahead of me in terms of the rules, the knowledge, the levers. The guy didn't even know what an agent was. They would have known that. Mm-hmm. There was that part of it where I was way behind the eight ball. But that mm-hmm. stuff's easy to learn. Right. That's what comes. Well, yeah. a little bit after this time, obviously, The Outsiders. And what is so interesting about The Outsiders is I reread that book and rewatched that movie because my son was reading that book and then watching the film. I, don't, I can't think of any other film, honestly, that has so permeated the zeitgeist in that you're brand new for someone, Ralph Macho, you're brand new, even though he's obviously on Cobra Kai doing very well on Netflix, you know, as a as a grown man with kids and all that stuff. But like, it's incredible the last, the, the staying power that that film has and where everyone went that was cast. Talk about casting. Well, I, Fred Roos is an unsung hero of the business. He's Francis's producing partner. He's worked on every couple of movie forever. And Fred's job as a producer is to, is to cast. Fred Roos cast American Graffiti. Fred Roos cast Star Wars. Fred Roos cast The Godfathers. Fred Roos cast The Outsiders. And when you do a list of the people in those movies, it's jaw-dropping. And he found us. It was all Fred. And um, the notion that the, the, the the Outsiders is taught as a seventh grade curriculum across the country is just a, a wonderful, amazing, I don't want to say fluke, but, you know, there are a lot of books out there. And it is, I, am, I have such gratitude around it because it, in every year, there's a new crop of kids that get to discover this group of actors and, you know, that I can you know, that I can get stopped on the street by a 13-year-old who's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, at 58, 59, sorry, I'm, I'm already subtracting from my age. Believe me, when I get 60, I'm really going to start subtracting, <laughs> um, is amazing. It's well, amazing how about they still recognize fans. you? Look at, I mean, you were ageless. Yes, I know you are your age. It's undeniable. But the fact that a 13-year-old can see the the kid in the in the movie and know that it's you on the street is pretty amazing. Rob, it's, come on. I, it, it makes me happy. I'd say it really makes me happy. It does. <laughs> Selfishly, you got to love it. Well, I already started this conversation with St. Elmo's Fire about how that, you know, obviously was just such a juggernaut in um 
culture at the time. And what I'm fascinated by, and I work with a lot of young people, is the 80s are just so cool. Everything old is new again. Mm -hmm. And I watched, um, obviously, that uh, Warhol. That was also a really great series. You were fantastic on it. You know, I worked with Bob Colicello at Vanity Fair. I was steeped in that world and a lot of those journalists that were talking and also just naturally obsessed with the art and the culture around that time period. But why do you think it is that that kids are so the younger generation are just latching on to this like 80s and kind of 90s nostalgia? Well, I, I think it's a natural phenomenon. If you look like I again, I look back when I was young and coming up in the 70s and the 50s were everywhere. American Graffiti, mm-hmm. Happy Days, Grease. So there, I think there's a thing about what it what would it be ever you become obsessed with what is two decades removed from your actual life. I really believe that's a thing. I think if we went back and into a time capsule to to, you know, 1920, they were probably obsessed with 1900. Oh my God. So I really believe that goes on. But the 80s is a, a great decade to be obsessed with because the music was great. The movies were um, still great. Um, it was really innocent still. Um, and it was colorful and it was vibrant. And it had a sort of exuberance to it. I mean, there, there's always a dark side to every decade. So I don't want to pretend that it was perfect. There weren't tons of problems in, as there always are. But it had some things about it that make it kind of jump out as a decade. Mm-hmm. Another thing that all the young people, this kind of like old Gen Z young millennial is West Wing. Mm. They can't get enough of West Wing. Mm. And yeah. obviously, I remember that in real time. I am a Sorkin devotee, love yeah. love the man. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say West Wing? Sam Seaborn, you know, my character. That was a role where we were talking about the grinder early on. That was another one. When I read that first pilot script, I was like, oh, this is my part. No one else is getting this. This is, this is I got this. And I just, I fell in love with Sam the first minute I read it, knew, knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. And it was like a treasure. It was a treasure playing that character. It really was. Again, the, thank God for Netflix and thank God for streaming that that show ha- continues to have a life because I'm super proud of it. Mm-hmm. That is like the Netflix effect. Again, people watching these shows again and again. Wayne's World. Amazing. Well, that <laughs> came out of... Um, I had hosted Saturday Night Live a couple of times, had a really, really great experience. And Lauren and I had gotten to know each other and become friends. And, and he was really the first person. I got to give it up to Lauren. He, Lauren was the one that went, oh, this guy's funny. It was Lauren. And because I wasn't really getting, I certainly wasn't getting straight comedy parts. And Lauren started it. When they were doing Wayne's World as a movie, he wanted someone who knew his way around a movie. (laughs) So he called me (laughs) and then just started a whole run that, you know, from Tommy Boy to Austin Powers all all started there. All those comedies. So it's so amazing. The Austin Powers stuff was, I remember when you came on as uh, my friends, Jennifer and Suzanne produced the first two of those and whatnot. But I remember when you came on as RJ, the it was just brilliant. 
It was brilliant. And then I read that you got that part basically because you would just imitate him. And Mike Myers was like, specifically wrote that knowing that you could do that great imitation. He he liked my Robert Wagner imitation. I, like there are certain people that people imitate and everybody can do Johnny Carson. Everybody can does Christopher Walken. But I love it when somebody imitates somebody really obscure and you're like, wait, oh my God, I never would have thought. So I think the arge, Robert, having a Robert Wagner impersonation. It's kind of like being a flutist. Uh, my, car- my, <laughs> no, my son being the flutist and it's not really going to get you anywhere, but it, it's a, it's a cool, it's kind of a good parlor trick and mm-hmm. God bless Mike Myers. He, he loved it and wrote that part in because he liked it. Mm-hmm. If you had to say three things that explain the longevity of your career. And, and obviously I would say one, you still have all your hair. You, your face is no, still yes, you. See, You're see, very authentic. By the way, it's under still. this hat. It's still there. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not pulling the, uh, and God bless him, Ron Howard. It's right there. Yeah. I'm, I'm wearing so a baseball hair hat. So hair is one of them. So yes. give me the oh, other yes. two. And by, and by the way, don't think I don't know it. Don't think, I mean, you cut me, I bleed Propecia blue. I'm telling you. <laughs> Don't you think that the first second I thought, hmm, is that is that hairline maybe marching a little north that I wasn't like mainlining it? Come on now. I okay, so if hair is one of them, what are the other two things uh, that you can credit <laughs> the longevity of your career? Um, I think the right nexus of thinking without overthinking. People get paralyzed by if they take a role, what does that mean? What does that say? Well, I don't really do television or I don't really do network TV or I don't do small parts or I only do big parts or I don't play good guys, but I only play bad guys. So I've done too many comedies. So now I just want to do only drama. It's all bullshit, all of it. And you would be shocked how many actors have that conversation with themselves. And... So once you don't do that, you're freed to see the opportunities for only what they are or may be. And, um, you know, some, Lauren Michaels always says, you know, if you want to be the heavyweight champion of the world, you have to take fights. And you got to defend your title. And so you got to work. And, you know... Um, like I'm not going to, and by the and, and not everything's going to work. In fact, most things don't work. Um, but so there's a lot, there's a lack of fear that you have to have and a, a sense of fuck it. <laughs> you know, um, I, I remember when, uh, David Duchovny called me about doing Californication and David's the star of Californication. I met David when he was an extra on my movie, Bad Influence. So he's the star. And now, hmm, am I going to go in and it's David show and I'm going to have only two stands. But it was a great part. And then the part had me saying some things. Eddie Nero was the character's name, like a demented actor. Like that I'm not sure I wanted to live on the internet. I mean, I, I said some stuff in that role there's a thousand reasons not to do that part. And I did it because at the end of the day, it was a great part mm-hmm. and I loved it. And if you, if you aren't willing to take those leaps, because w- what those leaps do is they reinvent you. 
and they introduce you to people in a new way. Um, and you can't just sing the same song you've been singing since I can't keep blowing the saxophone from St. Elmo's fire. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. Also, Parks and Rec, one of my favorite characters that you played on oh, that show. Love yeah. Parks and Rec. I don't want to uh, not do a shout out for that. Okay, one of the things I did want to ask you about, and I know this will come up because it's it's a part of popular culture now because of the New York Magazine, the Nepo Baby. What do you think everyone has wrong about this kind of idea of nepotism? Because I I will say from my POV, I've watched it. I've been in in Hollywood for almost 30 years now. And, you know, this business doesn't owe anybody a career, regardless Mm -hmm. of whose child you are or what your relation is. Yes, there's little things you talked about, like with uh, Emilio and Charlie, like their dad was an actor. They knew a little bit more about the business. But at the end of the day, it is... No one owes you anything here. Yeah, I mean, th- look, the the thing about nepotism and about um, th- that is what what you get are you get the agent. You don't you don't have to call somebody up like I did and go, "What's an agent? Do you know an agent? What are their phone like that?" You just have you have them clamoring, clamoring. You know, if you if you have any charisma, so for sure, and that's a huge leg. It is a huge leg up. I mean, if you're getting off the bus from Indiana. You, you, you're not going to get a phone call returned from an agency. So without a doubt, there's some there there to this story. But on the other hand, so let's, let's take this Nepo baby thing to the, to its ultimate logical conclusion. Are you telling me that the world would be a better place if there was no Michael Douglas because he's Kirk's kid? Are you telling me that the world would be a better place without Jeff Bridges because he's Lloyd's kid? Are, and, and, and on and on and on ad infinitum. And then are you, are you telling me that it's not fun to watch Charlie Woods play with his dad, Tiger? Are, are, are you telling me that Bronny James coming up in the NBA isn't going to be something that people should be interested. Like, get the f- Come on. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the other part of it is people have gone into the family business forever. Uh, you know, you know, it, whatever business you have, um, you know, people, I think f- fathers get to have that. And again, it's what my show's about is this c- c- wonderfully, complicated relationship of when your kid goes into the family business, which is a huge amount of pride and a huge amount of trepidation and a a great amount of companionship. And there's just a lot of there to there when, you know, someone goes into whether it's a bakery or a plumbing business or a law firm or a hedge fund or show business. It's people do it all the time. What is your favorite part of the day when you know you're going to work with your son? Other than seeing what kind of getup he rolls into the set with, <laughs> like, you mean like style, what, like clothes, what he's yeah, wearing? Yeah, yeah, like like oh, did, what, like seeing what he stole from Justin Bieber's closet on any given day. Um, you know, I love to give you know because you know, he gives me plenty of grief. He does so it. I love it. I love it. I got to find my way, my way to get him back. He I'm like, slanders I'm, you on Instagram, and it is so slanders fun. me. But I get him. I'm like, I'm like, yo, Austin Butler, get over yeah, here. Yeah, come on. Um. Uh, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's the, 
it's me playing the the part of Ellis Dragon to him that is the most elevated, adrenalized um, version of myself that I know drives him insane. Like where I'm like kissing him all over his face and hugging him and, you know, or in you know, dancing where he just is mortified. I love mortifying him. <laughs> oh my God, it's so funny. I'd love to be at your Thanksgiving dinner with with all of you. It's it's incredible. You've you've weathered all you there's no perfect life. And that's what I think is amazing that you and your family represent, even though you've lived in in the spotlight, you know, uh, but you persevere and you just it it's just heartwarming to see like no. everyone's gone through it and you're still there and you're still putting one foot in front of the other. And um, that's exactly it. Thank you. And it, it, you, you have it right. It's just putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, sometimes it leads to someplace great. Sometimes it doesn't, but you keep doing it and, and you turn around and look at the journey that, <laughs> that, that you've been, that you've been on. And that, that's the key. One foot in front of the other, really. You have a podcast, all right, literally with Rob Lowe. You also have the Parks and Recollection that you've done. You have another television show that you do for Fox, and you have this one. So, like, Rob Lowe, you're already working on the Malibu thing. Are you constantly thinking one step ahead? I was just having this conversation with with my therapist. I'm a big believer in therapy, by the way. If I weren't able to sit alone with myself, by myself, and be perfectly happy, I would be really worried. But I'm good in my own company. And it's, and I think it's a real key. I don't need the distraction. I can put the phone down. I, I don't have to have people with me. I'm good. On the other side of that, I'm always thinking of stuff to be doing, to be busy, because I think being engaged um, keeps a person vital and young and, and, um, having the right thing of like never being satisfied while being satisfied is the key. Like I, I'm not looking to do something new because I'm not satisfied with today. I'm super grateful and satisfied. I'm good, but I want the next thing. Cause that gives me the adrenaline, um, and, and, and all of that. So you know, I'm writing, I'm writing a movie, um, that I want to direct. I'm, I'm developing, um, with Tom Kapanos who did, uh, Californication, um, this Malibu project, um, 911, Lone Star is one of the biggest shows on network television. That'll go for as long as we want to make it. I think it's the right balance for, for me of, of, of exciting stuff in the future, but still, I'm, I'm able to kind of stay in the present. Hmm. All right. So my question is, when you are in public, whether obviously you live in, in Santa Barbara or when you're in L.A. or when you're in New York or when you're abroad, I imagine it's a different thing at each of these places. But when people recognize you in public or think they recognize you, what do they say to you? What do they come up and say to you? This is my favorite thing of all time. This is my favorite thing is that I don't know what they're going to say. They can literally I was surfing the other day. I'm on a wave and a guy goes, yo, Atkins, because I'm the spokesman for Atkins and I've been for the last four years. Made me laugh. I have had people go, I miss your direct TV commercials. Or they could be like, they use my catchphrase, literally, or 
hey, uh, hey, soda pop. I mean, you just don't. And that to me was was what's so cool is I, I, it's not going to be just one thing. It's not going to be just two things. It's not even going to just be three things. And, you know, I have friends who are super famous for one or two things, and that's what it's going to be always. And even guys like my, my, uh, my good friend Robert Downey, who went to high school with, it's like, that's a, it's Iron Man at this point. No one's going, hey, Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, if I'm down, I'm going to be like, um, hello, uh, Academy Award nomination, yeah. Chaplin. Yeah. Ever heard of it? Love Downey. He's you brilliant. Know, yep. The best. So I, I'm, I love that I don't know. And I also don't know how old they're going to be. They could be 80 or they could have watched Dog Gone on Netflix and they could be eight. By the way, Little Dog Gone, number one movie mm-hmm. on Netflix. Yep. Little little movie. Well, I love that you had movie. to come out and say the dog does not die because we have like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry. This is family friendly. <laughs> we literally had to say <laughs> the dog does not die because I would talk to people. Tell me about Dog Gone. When's it coming out? It's on Netflix now. Oh, I don't know, though. Oh, gosh, I, I can't watch things with animals. I, I don't know. Does it, does it do- I'm like, yeah, the dog lives. Oh, I'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> We're simple. We can't have, you know, it's, it's true though. No one wants to see, um, you know, animals. No. It's, 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 we love animals. I think about mm-hmm. amazing now how I used to have to, I had a dog that I would have to pay for a ticket going back and forth in the nineties to New York and go yeah. under the seat. And now there's just like, you go in an airport and it's just like animals everywhere. 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 There's now like, uh, you know, outdoor play areas at LAX for, for dogs. I'm like, when did <laughs> exactly, this all I happen? It's, but, it's the best. Rob, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to, and to have this experience. And I look forward to that Malibu movie or series, whatever it's going to be, or book. And you were on the cover of Vanity Fair. We did one of those, which I love, which is a great I, photos by Annie Leibowitz. are gorgeous. It's my, I, I love that I always wanted to be on the cover of Vanity Fair. It's a big thing in a career. and. I never got there as an actor, but I got there as a writer is, I'm not sure what it says, but I like it. It's pretty incredible, <laughs> I'd say. I think it says a lot of good things, actually. I think it, it says all the things it needs to say. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's great talking to you. Good luck with Unstable. It's a really fun show. And um, congrats for good parenting. I want a parenting book next from you and Cheryl. Cause, uh, oh, God. Parenting seriously. Jeez. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll see what I can remember. <laughs> it's a post-traumatic stress. I've blocked it all out. Fair. Fair enough. Yeah, right. All right, see you, Rob. All right, thank you. Bye. Unstable is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. Thank you.